This is Saren Kohli. You're listening to We Are All Africans. What's your name and what does it mean? <laughs> My full name is Chinonye Donna Ebulem. I'm Igbo. Chinonye means God is with you. My middle name, Donna, I don't, I, I have very mixed feelings. You know, goes back to that whole like identity politics, identity crises. My, I am actually, <laughs> my parents would kill me if they heard me sharing this, but I do strongly believe that, you know, this is all part of my story and my African identity. Um, I'm Nigerian-American, and um, I was actually born to two Nigerian parents who immigrated from Nigeria to the U.S., and my biological father was a Catholic priest, and my biological mother, a very strong woman, she's late now, she died when I was seven years old, but... (laughs) She was a teacher, she was disabled, she was an amputee. My biological father gave me that name because it was a name that really resonated with him, um, being uh, a priest. Uh, He knew the Latin language, and Donna means lady, and so he chose that name. Growing up, I actually went by a different surname. I actually went by the name Omile, which means wonder maker, and it's my biological mother's maiden name. She never married, but it was her name. And yeah, Ebulem, <laughs> it means don't kill me. I'm Igbo. I have dual nationality. I um, have Nigerian citizenship. I have American citizenship. I grew up <laughs> in a very strict household. Um, when my mother died, I relocated to from Washington, D.C., Also happens to be close to Maryland and Virginia, where some of the largest groups of African immigrants reside. And so for the first seven years of my life, I was like super indulged in all things Igbo culture. You know, I grew up listening to nothing but the Igbo language, learning the Igbo language, constantly being told you are Igbo, you are African. You come from, you know, just a great history and a great culture, always attending uh, Nigerian events. So when I relocated to North Carolina, my mother passed away. It was like a completely different world. So North Carolina is very slow paced. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in very, very white, predominantly white spaces. Um, So just by virtue of being Igbo, the missionaries came um, when my father, when my birth mom, my biological father, just my family, they were young. I would say they were in their 
primary years. So like 10 years and entering into their teenage years. And that was when the missionaries came. And for them, it was like, wow, the missionaries came to save us. You know, they brought us like my grandparents, they were worshiping various gods. And um, if you come to my village in Nigeria, you know, we still have a lot of those monuments and a lot of those relics. But the missionaries came and my biological mom, my uncle, who I now call my dad, um, who raised me and took me on when my birth mom passed away, they converted to Catholicism. And so when I moved to North Carolina, even prior to moving to North Carolina, when I was in Washington, D.C., um, I attended a Catholic school. It was a private school, but it was predominantly black because I grew up in a, I was being raised in a predominantly black environment, African-American. When I moved to Raleigh, my parents tried to put me in school, elementary school. Um, It was a public institution, (laughs) mostly black kids, and they just did not like. I came home one day singing the gigolo song, and it goes jig, hello, jig, jig, hello. And gigolo means prostitute, if you will. My parents weren't having it, pulled me out immediately, put me in the, the Catholic middle school. And I remember my very first day of middle school. <laughs> I was the only black child in this class, sixth grade. And the kids in the class, they couldn't focus. They were so confused. Like, what is this black body doing in this space? Because these were kids who, for them, they actually had never been exposed to to um, just being in a, a diverse community. They were so used to being in all white spaces because um, they had been in, you know, these were, they, they had already been at this academic institution for a while. So it was a very uncomfortable space for me. I just knew that I felt uncomfortable, but I was not able to break it down or deconstruct what, in essence, was happening. I've had the privilege of living in Uganda, living in Burkina Faso, living in Cote d'Ivoire, living in Swaziland, South Africa, etc. And oh my gosh, African is such a loaded word because it just really, truly depends on your lens. Um and your experiences. But being Nigerian, being Igbo, we are proud. We don't, even if we have dirty laundry, we don't air it. For so many years, it was like my mother died. And because I myself am so resilient, I was able to just transition so smoothly. It was like, okay, I moved into this new home. Immediately, my mother and my father, they were like, you're going to call, they're my my birth mom's brother and his wife. But they were like, no, we are your parents now. You call us mom and dad. You know, it wasn't until years later that people in the community realized, wow, we didn't even know that you weren't her biological parents. Because everything was just so taboo. Coming from being born to someone who was a a Catholic priest, that's just sheer taboo. Like, you just, it's blasphemy.
there was also this expectation of like given the fact that I wasn't their biological child there's just this expectation that I was going to or I would have had this experience of being treated lesser than their own children and that was not the case at all if anything my parents I would say invested far more of their financial resources their love, their unwavering love, their energy to raise me and bring me up to be the woman that I am today. But one thing that really lacked was just being able to deconstruct what the hell was happening. Post high school, post secondary school, when I entered into university, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. UNC Chapel Hill was the first public academic university in the United States of America. When this institution opened up, I think only white men were allowed to attend then eventually black men. But, you know, you know, there's layers of privilege before white women were allowed to attend. And like, even when white women attended, I think that the classes were segregated, etc. It's an institution that was built by slaves. Um, Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, like a lot of the buildings are named after white supremacists. The history is just so deep. And so we do have an, um, a department at UNC Chapel Hill that is devoted solely to African studies and African-American studies. And I remember I just went out of my way to take all of the classes. And that was when I really started to dig deep and to even begin to write about my African identity. What does it mean? And what does it mean to be a Nigerian woman? (laughs) What does it mean to be, you know, my parents, like growing up in a strict household, it was like, we just couldn't even have discussions about sex. And I remember my parents even went out of their way to send me to boot camp. And I remember going to boot camp and they were like, all the other kids were there for for doing drugs and doing crack cocaine. And here's this girl who is a straight A student, has excellent grades, just like plays sports, plays soccer, plays football, plays basketball. And why are you here? Um, Because I was having premarital sex. And it was just like, wow, like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. So you are a Nigerian-American. How did you know when you were American and when you were Nigerian? What were the signs? When I got my first job, I was 16 years old. I was working at the movie theater. I did not even last four days in that space because I came home. My parents noticed something was off. But I remember my boyfriend at the time, He, I was in the middle of training and he came into the room. and. He asked me, where are you from? I said, "Um, (laughs) I'm from Washington, D.C. And he's like, no, where are you from? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm from Raleigh. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's like, no, like, where are your parents from? That was when I said, oh, they're Nigerian. He's like, oh, okay, where in Nigeria? From the east, eastern Nigeria. Okay, so you're Igbo. You are Nigerian. I said, yes, I guess. I'm Nigerian-American. And that was when he was like, you know, he just... At the time, I think that was when all of the, um, like, Peace Square was very popular and um, most many Africans, even um, non-Americans, Black Americans, that was when Afro, Afro beats started to be a thing. It started even reggae music. All of a sudden, like, when we think about all things African diaspora and just cultures merging together, that was when that was starting to be a thing. And communities, even Afro-diasporic communities were starting to kind of merge and just there was this exchange of culture. And so I, re- I went home that day and I just started asking my parents a lot of questions because 
when my biological mother died, that was it. Like once I moved into this home, we were only speaking Igbo in the home. Like my aunt and uncle, my call mom and dad, their kids, they have four girls. They don't speak a lick of Igbo because growing up, we didn't speak Igbo in the home. So the Igbo that I know actually came from just my biological mom and my biological father, just always forcing me to take lessons and to learn the language. And so I, I went out of my way to start listening to the language and then coming from having an Ivorian boyfriend. I also wanted to learn a lot about Francophone Africa because I realized, oh, wow, just from doing the research, walk, watching documentaries, I'm like, oh my goodness, all I ever knew about Africa was Nigeria. And there's so much more to the continents. <laughs> um, and so I started watching like Ivorian comedy films. And then that I, I, I got a chance to study abroad in Switzerland in 2011. And when I was in Switzerland, I became even more exposed because my host father was from the Congo. And um, so just by virtue of being in that space, <laughs> started hanging out with African, Frank, more Francophone Africans um, in Europe. When I came back to the U.S., I was like, that's it. I need to go to Africa and I need to live there. And I need to just reconnect with my roots. So I went to Burkina Faso and I never felt more American in that space. Well, how did you end up in Burkina Faso? When I graduated from college, I knew that I wanted to join the Peace Corps. It's, oh my gosh, lately I've been actually speaking out against the Peace Corps. And I'm like, no, the Peace Corps is bad. It's just another form of neocolonialism. But um, it's all part of the discovery process. But yes, yeah, so I wanted to do the Peace Corps. But my sole motivation for wanting to do the Peace Corps at the time was I wanted to get the hell out of America to have international experience and to learn French because I was on a mission. And so I remember telling, at the, we couldn't decide where we were going to go. All we could do was just express our interests. So I, I put all those things down. I said I wanted to be in Africa. I wanted to be in Francophone Africa. And I remember the day I got the phone call from the recruiting officer, the placement officer, and he was like, I, I have good news for you and I think you're going to like it. We are assigning you to Burkina Faso. Did you know where it was? Had absolutely no idea. I remember while I was in Burkina Faso, I had a, a training in Senegal. And I went to Senegal and I was just like, why is everyone just speaking like proper French? And I was just like, my body just was being so repulsive <laughs> to, to everything that was, to my experience, my African experience within Senegal, even though it's just so, ugh. Senegal is beautiful. And I felt the same way in Abidjan as well. It's funny because it's like, as Nigerians, I always, even my Nigerian friends, even the ones who are like Nigerian Americans, I don't care where we are. The ones, the, the ones who grew up in London, it's like, when you're outside of Nigeria, we go out of our way to be like, we are Nigerian. Then when I get to Nigeria and I'm like, okay, well, you're, you guys are consuming American culture. You're consuming even from the clothes that we wear to the music that we listen to. I remember when my cousins growing up, my super rich cousins, they would come from Nigeria to the States to visit us. And they <laughs> knew like all of the lyrics to like all of the 50 cent songs, even more than better than me. And I'm just like, okay. I feel like my parents went out of their way to incessantly tell me that I was Nigerian. 
But one thing that we don't think about is like, well, what does it mean to be from any country, even to be from the, the U.S. or to be from the U.K.? You know, let's talk about cuisine. Let's talk about language. Let's talk about music. And the language part was missing. <laughs> I would say, like, you know, just not being able to speak Igbo and not being able to even cook food. And I had to force myself. I remember I told my mom one day, like, when my aunt, her sister immigrated uh, to the U.S. in 2012, I think. Um, when I came back from Burkina, I was like, that's it. I'm booking a flight to Cali and I'm going to go stay with my aunt. And I went and I stayed with her for three weeks. And in those three weeks... We were only speaking Igbo in that house. I She taught me how to prepare like jollof rice. I was like, wow, this is my first time actually. And that's not, I'm not throwing my mom under the bus. That's not to say that like she didn't go out of her way to teach me. I think that I also had to take ownership and responsibility. And I was, because I was such a rebel. Were you able to connect on other topics? I wasn't interested. And I think that I wasn't interested because I was too busy trying to figure out where the hell do I just belong in this society? It's so crazy because I think that my spirit of rebellion actually is what forced my relationship with my parents to be stronger because they were, they were, they weren't going to give up on me, you know, like they, it was like they had a promise to my birth mom to take care of me. And then here comes my biological father, me being super manipulative. I remember reaching out to my biological father and I was like, I don't want to stay here anymore. So then he, being the manipulative person that he is, he's like, I want my daughter back. Okay, where were you for the last 17 years? And so like, my parents were like, no, you don't get to take our, you know, this is a product of our hard work. She is our daughter. My mom used to always get angry when I would, whenever I would be like, Ah, ah, mama, mama, why are you talking to me like that? You know, like if I'm like, if I put on my Nigerian accent, my mom scuffs and she's like, stop, you're mimicking us. How am I mimicking you? I am Nigerian. I am not mimicking. I can't mimic you if I'm Nigerian. Like this is a part of who I am and how I identify. And so like, they're, you know, just forcing my parents to have these conversations, these tough conversations, it's not easy for them. My mother died. We buried her in our village. She was a 
feisty woman. Prior to her getting into a car accident in the 80s and losing one of her legs um, and becoming an amputee, she was like the queen of the town. Everyone was coming to marry her, etc. So like even up until now, when I meet people and they're like, oh, who is your mother? As soon as I say that her name, like they know who she is. When I think about my biological mom and our family, the Omile family, they are super Igbo, super cultural. Like a lot of my extended family still lives in the village. And so it's hard for my, the person that I now call my mom, my aunt, my mom, she struggles. She doesn't, she is super happy and super content with the fact that she has four girls. The issue is (laughs) just the nonsense and the bullshit that comes with not having any boys. It's like, okay, well, my, my dad is building a home in our village and who is and and even before my mother died she was resilient with her one leg she was hopping from country to country a businesswoman there wasn't anything she wasn't doing and she actually ended up purchasing property so when she died the property that she had um automatically went to 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 me and so we have property in Enugu and um we are building that this property and I remember at one point in time my uh, my biological mom her her elder brother reached out to my the person I call my dad, now my uncle, and was like, where is this property? You know, technically, since Chinoye's mom wasn't married, the property should come to me as the elder brother. Woo! My yod. <laughs> my dad has some words for him. First of all, there's something called a will. <laughs> she did not, you know, and nowhere on this document, this this document, her will, did she say that this, this property belongs to you that you would, you know, inherit or acquire ownership of it. And I would say that like my dad has done a phenomenal job of just navigating these very difficult conversations and spaces. And he's like, no, even if I die, my wife and my four daughters will inherit my property. dad is is a fighter and he like (laughs) actually he became a soccer coach because of me I was super fat when I I ate a lot and I didn't play any sports when I like when I was living in Washington DC so when I when I was seven years old I moved my mom was dying of cancer she died of breast cancer before she died I moved in with my aunt and uncle and they were like no we're not having this you're not allowed to be fat they threw me outside I remember like they were like you need to learn how what? You don't know how to ride a two-wheel bike? They threw me outside. They're like, don't come back into this house until you are you know how to ride it. And they were they, they enrolled me in soccer, football. And um I remember I was the only black girl on this soccer team. And they never wanted to play me in the games. They would always play me at the very end of the game. I was the fastest girl on the team. I was the strongest. I was <laughs> um Girl, I was the best. I had talent. And my dad wasn't having it. He immediately yanked me out of that team and formed his own team. (laughs) And we went on to play against that team, my former team that I was on. Girl, when I say I was, I scored 10 goals (laughs) in that game. (laughs) Like, kicking ass, kicking ass. So you said that you were seven years old when you moved in with your parents. Your mother was dying of cancer and you were fat. And 
you attributed it to not eating well. So your parents said, okay, you're going to do sports, to do this, to do that. But the weight gain and the fact that you were not eating properly, wasn't this linked to um, emotions? So were you able to talk to your parents about these emotions? My parents, they just, when we talk about emotions, bless their heart. It's just not something that they're good. They, they're very practical and they're very um, logical. And it's like, okay, your mom died. My sister died. We're all sad. All we can do is just pray that her soul rests in peace and we keep it moving. And we pray for the, the souls of the faithful departed. My weight gain and just me being overweight was a manifestation of just me having such a hard time. Even when I was living, my birth mom, like she had so many traumas, so many traumas from the betrayal of her family. She was in a car with her immediate family, like her cousins and her siblings in Lagos, on the way to Lagos when she fell out of the car and the car ran over both of her legs. I don't know the true story. I wasn't there, but I've heard so many different versions of the story. And it's like, some people argue that they left her there. And they thought that she wasn't going to live to tell the story. When she fell pregnant with me, that was an abomination. Number one, to be pregnant as a single mom, she got she was impregnated by a Catholic priest. She wasn't married. She was disabled and had one leg. There, but like, it wasn't like she didn't have that. She loved me. Oh my gosh, that woman loved me, but. It wasn't easy for her. I'm sure she just was always crying all the damn time just from being sad and like miserable and ha try having to work through her own traumas. Her traumas kind of became my traumas. She was one person raising me. And so she didn't get to, I guess, give me her undivided attention. She didn't have that privilege of being able to do that. And so I was always like hopping from babysitter to babysitter, eating whatever the hell I wanted. I was always acting out. The, the principal at my school always would call my mom and say, your daughter is not behaving. Always acting out. And what I know now is that when a child is acting out, nine times out of 10, they're seeking attention. And oh my, I was always seeking attention. Always. I would literally make up illnesses. And I was always in and out of the hospital. They told me I was lactose intolerant. And when I'm moved to live with my aunt and uncle, they were like, hell no, you're not lactose intolerant. You're going to drink this milk. Like just them being an African parent, like, no, fuck all that. Like you're going to drink. You are normal. You're not, we're not going to do that. Like you are a normal child. You're going to call us mom and dad and you're going to have a normal life. And so there's a lot of beauty in that. Many people look at me like I'm a psychopath, but in hindsight, my mother's death truly turned out to just be such a blessing because it relieved her. It was like, oh, now you can relax and you can rest.
my biological mother, America was her escape to a new life, new opportunities, a new chance to just rebuild herself in her new cultural identity. She was a devout Catholic, um, a devout, authentically hardcore Evo. Like it in my house, she immigrated to the U.S. in the eighties, late eighties, and. When she came here, she also enrolled in school. She actually was in the middle of pursuing her PhD when she fell sick with breast cancer. And I honestly think that the breast cancer was just a, a product of the stress, incessant stress. When she came here, she was in school. She was working. She eventually oh, she obtained her master's degree um, in special ed- in education, and she focused on special education. She was working at an elementary school. She worked with disabled kids. I think she took her her own personal experiences with disabilities and just kind of transferred it into the space working with kids. And yeah, that's what she like. She was also a businesswoman. I don't know how the hell she did it. Like I'm just like, how did she do all of this? But she took me back to Nigeria on multiple occasions. She made sure that my extended family knew who I was. And so that in and of itself is a privilege. Lately, I've been connecting with a lot of children who have been adopted. And for me, I was adopted by family. And so I was able to preserve my culture. And But there aren't that many. There are kids who like, you know, when their parents die, even on the continent, I've seen this. Even I remember when I was in, in the village, like when when mother and father dies, Sometimes kids, <laughs> you lose, there's a, there's a loss, a, lo- a loss of identity. But I think that what my parents have done a great job of doing and my community and my tribe have done a great job of doing is always reminding me of who my mother was and who I am and where I come from. And they're always like, you're so much like your mother, your energy, your spirit. Not everyone, especially adopted kids, have that privilege. And as much as my parents are super Americanized, one thing that they haven't really ever, that was a struggle even for my siblings and I, they didn't really have black friends like that, black American friends. And we were always so pissed off by that. Like my baby sister, her godparents were white. And I was like, why the hell? What? Why? Like, and then I remember coming home one day and it was like, they forced me to call my one, my best black friend. And they were like, you, you have to tell her that you're not, you're not black, you're African. So yeah. And that, you know, you have scruples and you have morals and you have values and you're not allowed to hang out with her anymore because she has a negative influence on you. And of course I'm not a parent yet, but I have nieces and nephews and I'm very overprotective and I, and as much as I'm very free spirited, I'm also very strict and I understand it from the parent perspective, but it's that verbiage and the, the word choice. I have a love-hate relationship with Nigeria. I just want, a lot of Nigerians are woke, but there are also a lot of Nigerians who are not woke. And they very much are, they're enslaved to their understanding of the world is just so colonized. And it's so sad and miserable. But like, <laughs> until people are willing to open up and have those difficult conversations, um, I am just going to, keep my distance. (laughs) And I think that I'm very much attached. I've told my parents, like, if I die prematurely, you must bury me in Nigeria. My African identity very much so is 
connected through this constant channeling of wanting to learn more. The more that I open, pick up a book, open up a book, watch a documentary, and I read, and I'm just forever empowering myself with this newfound knowledge, I realize, like, okay, this is what it means to be African. It means literally being stripped of your identity and, like, being stripped of your culture and it being whitewashed to the point where you have to reconnect and rekindle this relationship with whatever culture you choose. I encourage Africans to just, I know sometimes life just throws us, we get so overwhelmed with all that we have going on in life, but I promise you there's just so much beauty and like richness and forcing yourself to learn your history and to learn your roots and learn more about your roots and your ancestry. Thank you so, so much, Shishi, for sharing your stories and trusting me with your story. It's an amazing, amazing story of resilience and so powerful. Thank you so much. This is Saren Coley. You're listening to We Are All Africans. See you next Wednesday en français.